We're continuing in the book of Luke, the 19th chapter, and uh, we'll be reading from the 41st to the 48th um, verses, and we're going to be finishing up Luke probably by late fall. We've been in Luke for a while, and um, I see nods like, yes, we have. Um, it, it's always tricky deciding to preach through a big book of the Bible because on one hand, um, it's good for us to sub- submit ourselves to the flow of Scripture because it talks about things that we would not necessarily choose to talk about or think about. And so we yield ourselves to the authority of the Word of God because it takes us places we would not normally go. And at the same time, a congregation can become weary of being in a book for months or even years, and we've been, well, by the time we get to the end of Luke, at the end of this year, it'll be two years that we've been in Luke. And I was, um, I was tempted to jump ship, and the elder said, no, we started in Luke, we should finish it. So I said, that's a good decision, and we're going to finish it. And then, but the beginning of the year... Uh, 2019, we have a couple of sermon series we're going to be covering. We're going to be talking about uh, what does it mean to live the good life from God's perspective, from from a scripture's perspective. And also, we'll have a series on who is my neighbor. It's a good question. Uh, As we think about complex issues in our culture, about immigration and things like that, and uh, finding out what it means to love our neighbor, which according to Jesus is the second greatest commandment besides loving God. So these are important issues, more topical series, but we'll cover those. So uh, let's jump into our text this morning, Luke, the 19th chapter, starting in verse 41. Hear the word of God. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Father, now we thank you for this passage of scripture. We pray now for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this text this meaningful and powerful story of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem and confronts the temple authorities. Father, we pray, O God, that we would be transformed by its truth, that our hearts would be convinced of it and convicted of our own sins. Lord God, guide us, illuminate our hearts and minds that we would leave differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there are few things harder for a parent who, after repeatedly warning their children about certain behaviors, 
sees them suffer the devastating consequences because they refused to listen. That's hard for a parent, right? Those of you who have been parents, maybe you've, if you don't, if, if you're not a parent, you've seen, you experienced that with your own parents. And I think any loving parent would not feel a sense of, I told you so, or gratification, or even vindication, but they'd be grieved if after having warned the child to avoid certain things, they did it anyway and suffered as a result of it. When I was a teenager, I've shared with some of you, I was in trouble with the law. I was a part of a gang in Los Angeles. I grew up in a gang neighborhood and I got swept up in that lifestyle at about 13 years old and one day the police raided our home at 5 a.m. with guns pointed in my face. I was under the covers, I was sleeping, I woke up to guns in my face in my bedroom. I was on probation. I had violated probation, getting in trouble with the law, and I hadn't been reporting to my probation officer, and one day they showed up with a warrant, and they raided the house and hauled me off to jail because of my involvement in a gang. And my mother later told me that my father wept over me that day. I'd never seen my father cry much, let alone weep, but she told me when I got out of jail about a month and a half later that she said, your father wept that day. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we find other people in tears. The widow at Nain, Jairus' family, and others in distress coming to Jesus for healing and salvation. But at last, it's Jesus' turn to weep and to cry. In John's Gospel, Jesus weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And now he weeps over the city of Jerusalem And there is no one to console him. He's all alone. Like a parent horrified uh, to watch an adult child destroy their lives, Jesus can now only watch as Jerusalem's fate is sealed. The J.B. Phillips New Testament puts it this way. If you only knew, I think we have a slide, if you only knew even at this 11th hour, on what your peace depends, but you cannot see it. If you only knew at this 11th hour on what your peace depends, but you cannot see it. Catastrophic doom is headed toward Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And Jesus goes on to say, the time is coming. This is his prediction. This is the beginning of his prophetic lament and prediction that destruction is coming towards the city of Jerusalem. The time is coming when your enemies will encircle you with ramparts, surrounding you and hemming you in on every side, and they will hurl you and all of your children to the ground. Yes, they will not leave one stone standing upon another, all because you did not know the time when God himself was visiting you. I mentioned a moment ago the feeling a parent would feel. It is not one of I told you so or gratification. And Jesus certainly does not announce this prophetic doom with some sense of glib vindication, but rather he's mourning what's coming on the city and its inhabitants. This is God's holy city, the dwelling place of the temple of God that Solomon built. It was destroyed and rebuilt, and they've just finished a 46-year beautification process of the temple. The temple is everything 
in Jewish religious life. It would be for us today as if in America there was only really one main church, like the church. Like, you know, if, if, if it was like, you know, the headquarter church that everyone made pilgrimages to no matter where we lived in the country. And it had existed for you know, thousands of years. And Jesus is announcing doom and destruction on the city and its temple. And this is a prophetic lament similar to Jeremiah. You're familiar with the book of Lamentations. Lamentations taken from the word lament. And it's the story of Jeremiah, this weeping prophet who weeps over the sins of Israel in Jerusalem. And he goes into Jerusalem right before the Babylonians invade in 596 BC. And he utters this prophetic lament with tears. And he's weeping because the people will not repent. Because their lives have rebelled. They've rebelled against God. This is good for us to think about when we think about judgment you know, this is, it's a, such a sticky topic because people think that the proclamation from Scripture of God's judgment is somehow this rejoicing over destruction when in reality, God weeps. He weeps over the rebellion in people's hearts. He doesn't want to see people destroyed. And we talked about last week in some of our questions about how our actions have consequences. So this is similar to the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah. And you remember Jonah walking into Nineveh saying, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Daniel, when he interprets the writing on the wall in the book of Daniel with Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, and he interprets the writing on a wall and he says, the city is going to fall to the Persians. These Old Testament prophets that Jesus is conjuring up this image of, and following this long line of prophets, Jesus indicts Jerusalem. And it all boils down to this one charge. It's failure to recognize God's saving activity on its behalf. Let me unpack that for a moment. Centuries and centuries of hopeful expectation of God's intervention, the people of God, the Jews, the ancient nation of Israel, oppression by foreign powers, and their hope and expectation that the Messiah, the Deliverer, long promised by the prophets, would finally come, and here it is, and they're blind to it. They don't recognize it. They fail to recognize God's saving activity on its behalf. Now, Jesus spends most of his ministry proclaiming what Isaiah called the year of God's favor and blessing. For those of you that were here two years ago when we started Luke, we got to chapter four, where Jesus goes into the synagogue, opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and says, you know, uh, this is the year of God's favor, right? He's proclaiming, essentially, the, the, the prophecy in Isaiah of the Jubilee year. And Jesus is announcing, this passage is speaking of me, and of course, they decide to, you know, they, they want to throw him out of the synagogue. You know, they gave him a, a chance to read the scripture. And I guess he, you know, violated the synagogue rules and they didn't want to hear it. And so from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, they've been wrestling with accepting him. He's not the guy they were hoping for. I was meditating on this the other day and trying to figure out what would be a modern equivalent for us 
in the 21st century, Christians today. And it might be, um, maybe, maybe, you know, there's the Basilica in downtown, in, in the central West End in St. Louis. It's this beautiful, beautiful building. And you can go in and you can, you can tour the place and there's all these liturgical rites. And it would be as if the priests and all of their vestments were doing their thing and some guy walks in off the street you know, in shabby garments, soiled by sweat and dirt with his hair matted and ratted, which is probably how Jesus might have looked because it says that, right, foxes had holes and birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man had no place to rest his head, which means that Jesus lived somewhat of a transient lifestyle, like a homeless person going from city to city as a traveling preacher. We have this image of Jesus as being, you know, this kind of clean, you know, figure, but he probably from from just glancing at him visually would not be very appealing. He probably smelled like body odor and sweat. If you hugged him, you know, he might have been like hugging a homeless person. And so for someone like this, who had this appearance, who came across this way, to go into the elite religious establishments of the temple and all of its apparatus and to declare that he was the Messiah would be, there would be so much dissonance there. You can imagine. And so they rejected Jesus. They weren't able to recognize what God was doing through his ministry. They failed to receive it with praise and blessing. And there were consequences for that. The peace that they had wanted arrived, but it wasn't peace with Rome. It was peace with God. You see, they couldn't have one without the other. And this is instructive for us because we live in a world where most of us, especially the nations we live in and our leaders are infatuated with peace, right? The United Nations meets and some progress is made. There are conventions and, you know, and treaties put into place and we're grateful for that. But a world that rejects peace with God can never truly have peace and this is exactly what's going on in Jerusalem in the first century. Jesus has introduced the way to have peace with God but they've rejected that peace and instead are hoping that somehow there'll be some type of settlement with Rome, but it's not going to happen. You can't reject peace with God and have any real sense of peace with your neighbor or peace in the world. They couldn't have one without the other. My daughter asked me the other day, Dad, what would you do with three wishes? And I said, you know, world peace and an end to hunger. And my other daughter said, well, do you think world peace would end hunger? And I said, I don't know. And then she said, well, what about the third wish? And I said, a billion dollars. But um, we're infatuated with peace. We want peace. We hope and pray for peace. Colossians 1.20 tells us that Jesus reconciled in himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' entire ministry was the accomplishment of peace, the peace that matters, the peace that really counts. And so by rejecting Jesus and his work of redemption, the religious leaders rejected the things that required for peace. That's what it says. If you had only known what makes for your peace? If you had only been able to recognize the things required to, to bring the peace that you want, but you won't. And so by refusing Jesus, they refuse peace. And so now 
War and destruction are coming. The time for repenting for them is over. That's helpful for us. Scripture declares that God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. We don't know what the time stamp is on God's mercy. We know towards his covenant people, his mercy endures forever. But we know that God will not always labor with people in their sin. And so for them, the time of repenting is over and opportunity has been missed. They've reached a point of no return and their fate is sealed. Rome's war machine is coming for them. And if you know anything about Rome in the first century, they were an absolute superpower that made the kingdoms before them pale in comparison. They had a system of absolute domination and military hegemony that that just subdued any nation or country that resisted. I mean, it was futile. Rome's power was absolute. And Jesus says that the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. Now, some of you who are familiar with history, you know the story of the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Romans under the Roman general, first Vespasian, and then his son Titus, the general Titus. And to this day, in Rome, there is an ark, a stone ark, with carvings of the Romans carrying off the menorah, the large candelabra in AD 70, and all of the treasures of the temple when Rome defeated Jerusalem. And maybe to this day, underneath the Vatican, those treasures are still there. But it happened, just like Jesus described it. The Romans came within a generation's time, and destroyed the city and the temple, and not one stone was left upon another. And he says, your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they're frightening and ominous words, but Jesus weeps over this reality. There's no smug celebration just as we ought not to have a sense of celebration at the idea of the death of the wicked, right? Those who refuse the gospel, refuse to trust in Christ, that's not the attitude we're supposed to have, some type of smug, glib celebration over the destruction of the wicked because such were some of us. And it is only by God's grace that we're here in this place this morning listening to the word of God, believing and singing praises. It's not by anything we've done in ourselves, any sense of individual worth before God. God says in Ezekiel 33, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And so a heart of evangelism wants people to be saved, not destroyed. A heart that embodies the grace and mercy of Jesus wants to see people turn from their sins and have life everlasting, not remain in their unbelief and be destroyed. Jesus weeps over this reality that they will not turn. Now, the city of Jerusalem and the temple are virtually equated in Luke. And so what's going on here is Jesus comes into the city the week of his passion, at the very last week of his life. In fact, the next four chapters of Luke really concern one week. And this is the beginning of the week where Jesus sees the city, weeps over it, announces his prophetic doom, and then he goes straight to the temple because in the mind of Luke, 
The temple and the city are equated as the same. The the temple stands for the city. The temple is the headquarters of the city. Its religious and civic life are centered at the temple. And so Jesus, he makes a beeline right to the temple. How do prophets confront the corrupt religious practices? They go to the temple. How do prophets decry the neglect of the poor? They went to the temple. And how do prophets criticize the lovelessness of man-made religion? They go to the temple. In verse 45, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It's written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Matthew's gospel has a very similar version of this passage. And it says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Who here is familiar with that image? You've heard of it before. You've seen it before. You've, right? It's Jesus, and this is what's so spectacular about this scene, This is not the Jesus meek and mild we're used to. This is not the peaceful, and Jesus was meek and mild. I mean, according to scripture, he was the meekest, the mildest person who ever lived. I mean, Jesus could verbally rebuke you, cut you to shreds with a soft, gentle voice, and then make you feel loved after. I mean, he just, he had this way, right? He wasn't out, you know, smashing people over the head with a club. He was meek. He was mild. He was gracious and compassionate and merciful. But this scene seems so dissonant. I mean, he walks into the temple, and if you can imagine Jesus, like, maybe with a whip, you know, overturning, you know, the tables and, you know, driving out people with a whip out of the temple. I think, like, what in the world is going on here? How can Jesus get away with this? You know, how can he do this? How is this, how does this comport with his character of being meek and mild and gentle? Well, the temple is supposed to be the place of welcome for all people. But it's become, it's essentially been, been um, used and reserved as sacred space for just an elite few and their own enrichment. And this infuriates Jesus. It infuriates him because the very thing that God purposed to be for the healing of the nations, right? Worship of the true God, which was supposed to be inviting to everyone, the temple has been become a place of exclusion and profit for for the people who have access to its sacrifices and its religious paraphernalia. A small group of people controlling the temple for their own purposes and abusing the temple. The temple had two areas of worship. If you're familiar, there was the inner court where the Jews worshiped, and then there was the outer court. The inner court was where the sacrifices were, and the outer court were for Gentile converts. But what had happened was they had set up the outer court where Gentiles, foreigners, you know, people who were not Israelites, where they were supposed to worship, but they had set it up as a place of commerce. They had set it up as a place of commerce, so if you were a Gentile walking into the outer court, there were people exchanging money and selling animals, and there was all this commerce going on. And the nature of the commerce was this. If you went to go give an offering to the temple, 
they had made up an arbitrary rule that you could not give a coin with Caesar's image on it because that was blasphemous. So you had to change your coin for a temple coin that wasn't valuable anywhere else except the temple. So instead of the religious authorities simply accepting an offering, you had to exchange your coins for another coin, and there was probably some type of rate of exchange where the people giving you the coin were making money hand over fist over this practice, right? And of course, what did they do with the money? Well, they took it and they profited. That's number one. The second thing was poor people who could not offer to, afford to offer a lamb, they were able, according to the law of Moses, to offer a pigeon or a turtle dove. That's where that comes from in the, the 12 days of Christmas. A pigeon. They were able to buy pigeons and offer pigeons, and that was also something that they were getting rich off of. They were selling pigeons, and so it had become a place of commerce instead of a house of prayer. Now, why is that important? Because prayer is the key to worship. Prayer is key to worship. They were unable to recognize that God was bringing the peace that they so longed for because prayer was not thriving in their midst. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, but it had become a place of money and commerce. And so they're condemned for being a prayerless people. And what is worship without prayer anyway? What is worship without prayer? What's piety without prayer? What's religious devotion to God without prayer? And the answer from Jesus, apparently, is it's empty, vacuous, vapid. It's meaningless. Because for all of their outward religious behavior, these are not people of prayer, and their lack of spiritual sensitivity disables them from recognizing what God is doing. And this is a good word for us. Because we can be caught up in outward forms of religiosity and piety. Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but any, any outward behaviors need to be undergirded by authentic worship of God, and at the heart of authentic worship is prayer. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if your prayer life is lacking, to reconsider that area of your devotion to God. If you struggle praying, keep at it, because it's vitally important. Prayer is the power behind our lives and through which the Holy Spirit ministers to us and sanctifies us. Now, God is faithful even in spite of our lack of faithfulness in prayer, but there is a missing element when prayer is not joined to our daily walk. There are things we're unable to detect and see and realize. And I say this to myself because I'm committed to prayer, but it's hard. Prayer is hard. It's hard to pray sometimes especially if you're busy, you're in that stage of life where it seems like there's just one thing after another. It just, it takes all of you just to slow down for a second. But prayer is key. And Jesus is touching on this. This temple, this place of worship, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, has become a, become a den of robbers and a place of exclusion. Now, this raises some questions. Did Jesus really think his actions were going to change things in the temple? What was he hoping to accomplish? Well, Jesus is quoting, when he says these words, you've made the temple 
a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. And I want to read through Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11 real quick as we close. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the migrant, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So when Jesus utters these words, he is bringing to mind this very well-known prophecy and words from the book of Jeremiah that people in his day would have been very familiar with. It was the announcement of coming doom, because that's what happens with Jeremiah. He's announcing the destruction that came upon Jerusalem some six centuries earlier. And Jesus is reviving that image. And this is what he's saying, and here's the, the application for us as we close. Do we come to church on Sunday and neglect mercy in the streets or towards our neighbor? Do we worship with our lips and yet oppress the migrant? Do we worship God openly on Sunday yet live wickedly in private? These are the things that God cares about. God cares about these things. God cares deeply that the things that we are doing outwardly are undergirded by true religion. You know, religion's not bad. It's false religion that God hates. Pretentious, phony religion. And it's interesting that this judgment that Jesus announces and most of Jesus' judgment in the Gospels is not announced upon the world, but upon the people of God. And it came upon that generation. And the Bible says that judgment begins at the house of God. What that means is God is more concerned with the hearts of his people who proclaim his name to the nations than he is with what wicked people are doing. God wants us, his people, to be right in his eyes. Not to just pay him lip service. And this may seem so far away and long ago that it's irrelevant today. But there's these important lessons we should remember as we leave out of here today. God's house remains a house of prayer for all nations and all peoples. Far be it from us to exclude anyone from our assembly or gathering. And there are some people, as I mentioned earlier, who naturally would repel us. 
The modern equivalent would be maybe a smelly homeless person coming in here or something like that. That would, you know, that would be hard for our West County sensibilities. But God wants the place of worship to be welcoming as a house of prayer for all people, for all nations. The church is for everyone. God welcomes people of every racial and ethnic and social and linguistic background that every church should seek to welcome the nations. And I'm going to close on this note. As we think about our country, as we think about where we're at, it's helpful for us to recognize that compared to Jerusalem, Israel, I don't know, what is it, 7,000 miles away, 11,000? Rex was just there recently. We're the ends of the earth here. This is the ends of the earth. And God seems to be sending people of every tribe, nation, and tongue to our doorstep. We don't even, in, in some sense, we don't even need missions. I mean, I support missions. But the point I'm trying to make is the missions are coming to us. God is sending people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and even other religions right here to our doorstep. And so it behooves us to embody this ethic of the temple to be welcoming to all nations and all peoples. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this profound word from Luke. And help us to see ourselves in whatever appropriate manner required as the people of God, that we keep this tension that you long and desire for us not to corrupt our religious practices or merely have an outward, external show of religion. We love the fact that we gather together weekly in our small groups throughout the week, and even our liturgical practices are perfectly fine. But let us never empty out our true devotion to you by privately, even though publicly we've been outwardly pious and faithful, but privately we have failed to honor and worship you. Touch our hearts now that we would long to embody the grace and message and gospel of Jesus Christ publicly and privately and in all we do, welcoming all those that you send to our doorstep. In Christ's name we pray, amen.